Welcome to The Sword and the Trowel. The Sword and the Trowel is a podcast of Founders Ministries, and Founders exist for the reformation of local churches and for the recovery of the gospel. Glad to have you here with us today. I'm Tom Askell. And I'm Graham Gundon. And we're particularly glad for you to be a part of this conversation today because, as we will introduce in just a moment, we have a very special guest, somebody that I've looked forward to talking with for quite a while. But first, we want to just remind you that in January 2023, we have our National Founders Conference coming up on the question, what is man? Uh, registrations are coming in. We expect it to be sold out here before too long. So if you're looking for uh, a place to go in January, Southwest Florida is not a bad uh, selection. And we will be having a wonderful conference with Vody Balkum. Joel Beakey will be here. Bradley Pierce will be here. And Paul Washer uh, will be joining us along with some others to address this vitally important question in our day. What is man? We also have uh, some specials going on. If you go to the founders.org website, you'll see that. And we want to thank all of those who stand with us as Founders Alliance members to enable us to have this podcast and other things that we try to bring to you regularly. Well, today, do you want to add something to yeah, that? Yeah, I was just going to say that on August 30th, we're also doing the <sighs> table talk with Tom. The that's team. right. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So that's at 7 o'clock for FAM members. And yeah, so if you, you want to be a part of that, it's a live Q&A with Pastor Tom. Uh, make sure you, if you're not a FAM member, become a FAM member. And that's at August or 7 o'clock on August 30th. Yeah, so send in questions if you have anything you want to talk about for that. Well, today we're delighted to welcome to the Sword and Trial R.R. Reno. He is the editor of the First Things Magazine, uh, formerly a professor of theology and ethics at Creighton University, and he's an author of several books, but the book that we particularly are interested in that we want to talk about primarily today is The Return of the Strong Gods, Nationalism, Populism, and the Future of the West. Uh, It's a book that I've worked through a couple of times. I'm going to be taking some young men uh, in our church through this book over the next several weeks as well. So we're excited about that. Dr. Reno, thank you so much for, for joining us today from New York City. Pleasure to be with you. Well, one of the questions I have to start off with is, uh, what was it that provoked you to write this book? I mean, what's the genesis of this book that uh, put you on a pathway of trying to gather these thoughts, put them in this format in book form? I guess, I mean, like so much else, Trump. Mm. (laughs) The 2016, it was so unintelligible to so many uh, people who are, you know, the pundits and the opinionators and the intellectuals who are supposed to know what's going on. It really blindsided my class, so to speak, Mm -hmm. of, uh, of New York opinionators. And so I wanted to sort of understand what, what was going on? Why was this such a shock? Uh, and what did Trump represent uh, as a new turn, so to speak? Mm. Uh, and that got me digging around into what I call the post-war consensus. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I taught for 20 years. I, started, I, I finished teaching in 2010. And even by 2010, if you got up in front of a bunch of 18-year-old college freshmen and said post-war, they'd kind of scratch their head and say, well, which war? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And of course, for someone like me, I was born in 1959, post-war means post-World War II. And that was really a watershed period of where we really kind of consolidated as a society around a certain consensus about what was good and what was evil. Mm. And that has run its course, I argue in the book, 
And now uh, we are in a political cultural context where people have lost confidence in that consensus, even as our elite seem to insist upon it with ever more vehemence. Mm, mm. So were you surprised by the election of Trump? Uh, no. Yeah. No. I wasn't either. Uh, you know, I, I had seen over the, I guess, in the early part of, of the last decade, in the early teens, it became more clear to me, if you listen to people, whether it's fancy pants college students talking about safe spaces or whether it's just ordinary folks increasingly concerned about their own futures or the future of their children, uh, I could see that um, the tone or the emotions of our civic life had started to revolve around um, fears rather than hopes. And that in that kind of context, you are political, the political valence, if you will, turns to promises of protection. Mm-hmm. And Trump, whether it's tear up the trade deals or build a wall, in 2016, you really ran on a, on a campaign of protection. I'll protect you. Mm-hmm. And I, I could see that we live in a society where that's what people want because so much has been dissolved, so much has been undermined. You know, we live in a society where the majority of young people, I mean, if you're born in this year or, year, or last year, you'll probably grow up in a, in a, in a your, your childhood, you'll have no father at home and no father in heaven. Um, when I mean, you have a father in heaven, but you won't, you won't be taught that. Yeah. And I don't see how you can sustain a society with that, with that level of, if you will, abandonment. Um, and and I and I, so I so I, what happened in the post-war period is there was a feeling that we, Nazism and all the problems of our. The first half of the 20th century came from over-consolidation, people believing too strongly ideologically, and that we needed to have um, a more fluid, more dynamic, more open society. And, you know, I probably would have signed on to that in 1950. Uh, But gosh, you get to 2020, and the idea that the United States is not open enough. In fact, I just got Sunday Times, I'm reviewing it before we got on the podcast, and you've got a, uh, an op-ed arguing that the problems that we have between men and women in our society, which are quite significant, they can be solved by still more sexual freedom. <laughs> uh, insisting that we just haven't gone far enough yeah, in deregulating uh, our most intimate, our intimate lives. Yeah. And I look at that and think that's the perversion of this post-war consensus, this open society consensus. So we've deregulated our economy, we've deregulated our culture, and people are swimming in an ocean, uh, treading water, and they feel like they're going to drown. One thing that I thought was really helpful about the book, um, you know, you in the introduction, you talk about your young friend who wrote to you and said, you know, I long to get out of the 20th century and into the 21st century. You know, this is, and he wrote this to you, I think, in 2010 or something like that. 
Pretty um, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then your first chapter titled The Post-War Consensus, and, and you really do kind of camp out in that. And you just said, you know, after World War II, that really was a watershed moment for us in the West um, culturally. You know, I think most of the time when we look at cultural analysis, a lot of people, you know, um, Carl Truman does this. He goes back to Rousseau and says, you know, you, you, you can go back even further. And even you touch on William of Ockham and how that influenced maybe a Karl Popper. But you really do camp out on um, pivotal figures and thinkers from the post-war era to today. Um, and I think that's that's such a helpful way to think about it. And, mm-hmm. and I think if you take if you're if you widen your scope too much, um, you miss a lot of things. And so the fact that you narrowed in almost like a magnifying glass on that post-war consensus is just was very helpful for me. Mm-hmm. Well, part of what I mean, every culture's got bad DNA. It's like all of us. You know, <laughs> we've got flaws in our genetic makeup, and if you're exposed to too much radiation. Uh, you know, your propensity to cancer will manifest itself. Uh, And so, you know, uh, I'm no fan of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. I agree with Carl Truman. I'm no fan of William Anakam. I agree with many critics of nominalism. Mm. But the question is, why did these tendencies, which were latent in the West, become so powerful? Mm. And I think we need to look at 1914 to 1945. This was a period of civilizational catastrophe for the West. And I think that, you know, when people talk about sort of anti-Western sentiment among elites, a lot of it is profoundly misinformed and misguided. But you can kind of look back and think, well, given what we endured and what we inflicted upon ourselves in that time period, 1914 to 1945, Americans are a little bit immune from thinking this way because World War II was a good war for us and World War I didn't destroy our societies the way they did in Europe. But, you know, we're all joined together civilizationally in the West. And that feeling of failure and collapse had a profound impact. And I think it triggered or it it made manifest certain tendencies that were latent. And it removed the countervailing tendencies in our society that could hold those negative trends in, in check. The, the diagnosis that seems to have won the day in that post-war consensus, that it is these strong gods, which can be anything uh, like even loyalty, just the fact that you believe anything strongly and having that set over what happened at Auschwitz and that we're never going back there. And in order to avoid that, then we've got to try to anticipate who will have these um, authoritarian personalities that that study that became a book, I guess, by Adorno and Horkheimer and others. And if we can identify tendencies toward an authoritarian personality and stop that and overcome that, then we can avoid what we've lived through in the 20th century. I'm, I'm thinking to myself, how did that diagnosis win the day? Mm-hmm. What was it that allowed that to be the argument that we carried? Yeah, it's interesting, you know, in that book, Authoritarian Personality, you know, a traditional understanding of parental authority is considered to be crypto-fascist. Right, right. So, you know, James Dobson, um, uh, uh, you know, famous famous book, um, you know, would, and it was, in fact, denounced by liberals as um, fascist or crypto-fascist. Mm-hmm. So extremely influential. Why did that gain the upper hand? I think it's important to see that, and I focus on the Harvard um, report on education for a free society, which came out in 1945. 
that our, our liberal elites imagined a kind of balance between the authority of tradition, which they affirmed, and what they called this you know, critical consciousness or open society imperative. But as I try to document, the prestige of the openness side always wound up trumping the, you know, the authority of tradition. Mm-hmm. And, and so when we get to the late 1960s and the students are in revolt against uh, their parents, I argue they, weren't invo- they were charging their parents with hypocrisy, yeah. not saying that their parents were wrong. Uh, and they were insisting in a more consistent pursuit of this open society imperative. Mm-hmm. So I think that the post-war consensus was always um, was always unbalanced, and the 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 great weight was on ever more openness. Mm-hmm. And I think we see this in uh, in a lot of talk about uh, diversity. Diversity kind of became a surrogate word for openness in the eighties and nineties. And then with President Obama, diversity is our strength. He said yeah. that over and over again. Yeah. Uh, that 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 was a that's just a restatement of the post-war consensus. Um, the problem is, is that I mean, by the time we get to now, we have a very polarized society, lots of divisions in our society. It's obvious that unity is our strength, not diversity. Mm, and we're yeah. anxious because we lack unity. Yeah. So the this. Diversity is our strength slogan was always uh, a canard. It was always a falsehood masquerading as a truth. You know, I took uh, a couple of years ago, I took that uh, F-scale test to figure out whether I was a fascist or not and had an authoritarian personality, and, and I'm just hoping that nobody ever discovers the results because I'll be arrested. <laughs> I'll start calling you Benito. <laughs> That's right. Our, our children well, will be arrested. If you just believe in the authority of God, yeah. you're automatically, and this is part of the reason why uh, progressivism has evolved towards such an antipathy towards um, religious folks. Yeah. It's because, you know, my, the magazine I run first things, our underlying premise is that the more deeply we obey God's will, the more fully human we become mm. and the freer we become. Mm-hmm. You know, St. Paul for freedom, Christ has set us free. And, and this is unintelligible in light of the post-war consensus. Um, but, you know, we live in a, and, and again, why I was not so surprised by Trump, people say, well, if we just liberate, if we just deregulate our culture more, we'll finally be free. But I look around me, people are in bondage to addictions. People feel they're in bondage to their economic anxiety. They're, mm-hmm. they, they feel deeply constrained, hobbled, and harmed by the disintegration of family life. So we don't live in a, you know, the end result of all this deregulation has not been freedom. Yeah. But instead, a, a kind of captivity that I think is felt by ordinary people very acutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's one reason that people are angry in our political culture. They don't feel like they have any room to move. How can I be prosperous? Um, I mean, data suggests that somebody born in 1992 turns 30 this year has a less than 50% chance of making as much as his parents did at age 30. Mm. Mm. And, and so just people don't feel like they have a bright future. Uh, and, I, and I think it's a cultural dimension, is, and I don't think it's just economic. Yeah. The recession of uh, religiosity from our civic culture 
has, um, you know, uh, really undermined one of the great consolations that all of us who are religious feel that, yes, we face difficulties, but ultimately um, we can trust in God's providence. Yeah. yeah, and it's been very intentional the way that religion has been pushed out of our, our culture because it's a, it's a strong God. And those strong gods are what push us into totalitarianism, authoritarianism, mm-hmm. fascism. I was wondering that's if you... That's what they say. That's but what I, they say, yes. Yeah, religion is the strongest god. I was, it's faith, flag, and family are the, the three Fs I think of. And faith is by far and away the strongest. And uh, far from pushing us... I mean, if you actually look at the history of resistance to whether it's communism or Nazism, it really was men and women of deep religious faith that have the, mm-hmm. um, the courage and the capacity to stand up and say, no, first word of freedom is no, I will not uh, do this. I will not do evil um, because we're free ultimately from the greatest power uh, that St. Paul says, you know, the principalities and powers that rule this world are sin and death. And, you know, that's, ultimately what the totalitarian does is he threatens you with death unless you conform. Yeah. And the religious, the religious, a religious faith frees us from that fear of death. Not completely. We're all human. We're all fallen, but it gives us that margin of freedom that I think is hugely important. I think I talk about in the book, you know, this was before I wrote the, you know, it was maybe in mid aughts, mid teens. I was at a meeting and there was a young professor at a big, California State University, and uh, and he he was opposed to um, was an evangelical Christian, you know, and his lesbian parents. I mean, he had come to awakenings as a college student and had committed himself to faith and the teachings of the Bible, and so and he was he was publicly outspoken uh, in defense of biblical norms about sex, and so that was totally at odds. Mm with the culture of the institution mm-hmm. and his students didn't agree with him at all, but he, his classes were always over enrolled. Mm-hmm. And he said, what, like, what's with that? And I told him, they sense that you're free mm-hmm. uh, because they're under the thumb all the time. And they sense that you're free and they want a piece of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think going forward, I think the churches are going to be very important witnesses to freedom in our society as we are cattle prodded into saying that men can become women and women can become men. Back to your important conference about what is man. We are being horse whipped to repudiate uh, the truth about man. Yeah. Um, and the churches, religious folks are going to be the leaders in resistance and a lot of people are going to stand in our shadow and be very grateful uh, that we're willing to speak in public about this. Yeah. You, you talk about strong gods, not as if uh, there's just one kind. There are dark gods from below, and then there's the, the three Fs you just articulated. And it's inevitable. Uh, one of the points that I think you've highlighted in this paradigm helps so much to think about the world today is that everybody has strong gods, even those that are arguing for openness and they try to hide theirs. It seems to me, they don't want to anybody to look under the hood to find the metaphysics that actually exists that they can't escape mm-hmm. because they're anti-metaphysical. And the, the choice comes down to who's God, what God, and are you going to consciously 
follow this God or not. One of the things we've been saying here, Dr. Reno, for years now is that the most important and subversive verse in the Bible is Genesis 1-1, that if we come to terms with the fact there is a God, he, he has revealed himself, he's created everything, and this belongs to him, and that, as you put it, our greatest freedom is found in coming into alignment with what he has revealed to be right, good, and true, then uh, we will live the life that we are capable of living, that God who exists has provided for all who trust in him. So does that make sense to you? If he is with us, who could be against us? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and also, I think that, uh, you know, part of the argument of the book, and I, as you say, is that the strong guys are coming back whether they want them or not. Right. And uh, some of them will be perverse and destructive. And I think the Old Testament's uh, polemics against idolatry um, testify to the perennial human need to bow before a, a, a power higher than itself. And so if we won't turn to the true God, we'll create um, false gods to, to prostrate ourselves before. Mm. And, and, I, and I think that um, in the political realm or cultural realm, and that can be a kind of, uh, whether it's a sort of race, I mean, that's, it seems to me, a, a blood, um, a god of blood. Um, whether it's left in there's also a kind of right um, uh, race fixation that I think is not surprising to me that it's, Reemerging mm. in our society, uh, it's interesting too. You know, if in the aftermath of 2020, you know, the summer of 2020 with Black Lives Matter, there was a lot of talk about blood on the left. <laughs> mm. You know, uh, vengeance and blood mm. vengeance, um, and and blood is a is a very strong um, rhetoric in public life. Yeah. I'm not surprised to see that return. Yeah, and and uh, as I say at the end of the book, you know, we we as Christians need to bear witness to the true God, and we need to purify our other loyalties, uh, in, with both reason and and with um, you know biblical critique. Um, so. So I, I think that, that again, we, we, we are going to have a very important role to play yeah. in the future of, of the West to try to guard against the perversions that the um, open society consensus is incapable of, of resisting. It takes, you know, iron sharpens iron. Uh, it takes uh, strong loyalties and bonds uh, to defeat uh, false loves. Yeah. That's what I learned from St. Augustine's Confessions. Yeah. You know, he knows the truth of the gospel, but he can't bring himself to put aside his vices. Not and yet. it's only when he is, um, when the arrow of God's love penetrates his heart that he's able to, um, to, to convert. And to me, that's a lesson. You, false loves can only be got, overcome by true loves. Mm -hmm. They can never be defeated by critique mm -hmm. and, uh, and these other things that, um, are so dominant in, in our academic culture right now. Yeah, and that's what, I mean, that's been the strategy, it seems, in the post-war consensus is that critique, um, you know, in critical theory, deconstruction, uh, deconstruction um, in uh, postmodernism in Derrida, 
Um, and we've we've seen where it's led. And really, you know, 2021 BLM, that is the um, result of that kind of critique, that kind of deconstruction, that kind of tearing down and removing the centered so that we can all be um, reoriented to our own small little worlds. I mean, inevitably, those dark, strong gods arise. And so I think that's that's so helpful. and That's so true um, that you know, disordered loves, deficient loves can only be defeated and overcome by love for God and love yeah. from God. One of the things I was struck by, Dr. Reno, is is your critique, uh, an assessment, it doesn't, it's not right versus left. You talk about uh, open societies or this openness ideology or, or way of uh, trying to live and how both left and right have per- bought into it. Uh, the, the left wanting cultural openness and moral openness and the right wanting economic openness and trying to, to uh, help us to think rightly about the, the air that we breathe. When people today hear about Popper's open societies, I think most default into the border issue. You know, well, this is mm-hmm. just a nationalism, uh, supranationalism issue, and that's part of it. But it's much bigger than that. It, it, is, uh, it permeates everything. Can you elaborate a little bit on uh, this whole idea of openness and your uh, assessment of that and how it explains where we are? You know, both the, I mean, Popper, he's, he, he winds up uh, dissolving, really, he is, I mean, metaphysically, he repudiates uh, the authority of reality, yeah. at least mm-hmm. the theory. Um, he's so fearful is he of uh, that we'll get a hold of something and put it at the center of our society. And uh, Friedrich Hayek, a great, a great hero of the American right, uh, has a kind of similar mm. uh, approach, except for him, it's not you know cultural openness as so much as economic openness that he sees as a great guard against totalitarianism. And you know, again, I, I. Uh, 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 but you can understand both men's extreme reaction to, they were both refugees yeah. from Austria and they were both had experienced all of this firsthand. Um, but, but again, what happens is it takes on a life of its own. So you get to the 1990s, I think, which is the period end of the cold war, which functioned as a kind of break. So the flag part of faith flag and family um, still had authority as a strong God, but that falls away. And I think the 90s is the time we build out the global economy. And so there's a lot of talk about the end of history. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so there's a kind of dream that we're going to be all knit together in a gigantic global free market. And, uh, you know, multiculturalism really came to the fore at that time as an ideology for how to manage society. And, and so I think we... We got a kind of fusion of center left, center right around the open society consensus. Uh, and we see that now, you know, the biggest corporations in America want to pay for their employees to travel to states to get, get their abortions. And so, you know, they want lower taxes for their business and they want to support the ongoing um, disintegration of norms that might constrain people's consumer choices. Yeah. Uh, and one thing so you I point think, out, you know, we need to, we, you know, uh, we need to be, you know, prudent as, in, as engaging our society. Um, you know, so, uh, but I, I've long said, if, if you're in favor of open borders, I could predict what your view on transgenderism right away. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's no logical connection, but yeah, right. they're both about borders. 
And there's a kind of utopian dream world that if we just get rid of boundaries, people will what people will live in perfect harmony. To to go back to that old Coca-Cola ad, um, and uh, and that's true for transgenderism. We just break through or open borders. Um, yeah, I, I I think these are actually connected to each other. Mm. Yeah, and that decades-long impulse, I think, on the right, coming from Hayek, coming from Friedman, this open markets, open economy, you know, the, the theory that, well, that will lead to more freedom for more people. I mean, the, the stake has been driven through the heart of that, I think, when you look at China. Um, and that was, that was the strategy with China, to ensure yes. that they had open markets, they had freedom in the markets, and then they would no <laughs> longer become totalitarian, they would no longer be authoritarian. And that's just not happened. Yeah. Yeah. And also, you know... Uh, I mean, I, I've written about this elsewhere, but uh, deregulation tends to benefit the strong and harm the weak. And and uh, part of the promise in the Reagan revolution, which was partly realized, was that if we, if we let the most talented members of society, if we let the creative juices flow and let the horses run, everybody will benefit. Surprise and tie us all boats. You know, which is perhaps true up to a point, but once we get globalization in the '90s, then then we can uh, we have America, you know, the creative class, the creative class in America, that's it's kind of abandoned the, the median American, mm-hmm. you know, outsourcing jobs uh, um, to low wage countries, and one of my biggest concerns in our society is the growing divide. And not just economic, people talk a lot about economic inequality, but the cultural divide. You have Mitt Romney talking about makers versus takers and Hillary Clinton about deplorables. So you've got a kind of perverse bipartisan agreement among elites Mm -hmm. that half the country is just kind of not worthy of their leadership, so to speak. that's That's not healthy for democracy. We need to have a leadership class in our society that you know is has some of the same incentives, uh, some of the same commitments, and shares some of the same loves mm-hmm. as uh, as the median, the big, the center of our country, uh, and I, and and I I think that's part of what I think the strong guys provide. The strong guys provide um, unity. They people people trust those who share their loves. And uh, as I say, faith, family, and flag—they're—they're they're all, they're all things that we have different. Flag is obviously political in the immediate sense. Faith in our country, we keep at arm's length from politics, at least in a direct sense. Uh, and family is not something that mm-hmm. uh, we want the government to to regulate. But if we can certainly have, you know, a uh, a political culture that encourages and nurtures the religious life of the American people as well as the stability and, uh, of families and, and the renewal of marriage. You end your book with these words before your afterward. Our task, therefore, is to restore public life in the West by developing a language of love and a vision of the we that befits our dignity and appeals to our reason as well as our hearts. We must attend to the strong gods who come from above and animate the best of our traditions. Only that kind of leadership will forestall the return of the dark gods who rise up from below. When I hear that, the the place of the Church of Jesus Christ 
the, the place of those of us who have had bequeathed to us through God's word the truth about reality from the God who is. Uh, our responsibility, our stewardship is huge in order to try to make known that which has been revealed in a way that is, is not bigoted, in a way that is not abusive, but in a way that is genuinely loving, that recognizes that we share a common humanity. We, we share reality with our staunchest opponents and that the most loving thing we can do is to try to help them come to understand and see that this is exactly the world that God has created for us and that he is uh, ruling over this world, providing for everything in this world, and that life is found through his provisions. So what counsel would you have for Christian churches? Uh, We're down here in southwest Florida. We pastor a uh, Baptist church committed to... Uh, Reformation principles, and uh, yet we have great friendship with other Protestants as well as Catholics in recognizing that we're in a massive war together. What counsel would you have for those that are involved in church life in America? The world that we live in now was not voted on. Uh, It is a consequence of a a very substantial, but nonetheless a minority of progressive um, uh, organizations and folks who who, uh, passionately believed in their cause and for whom the post-war consensus uh, gave um, a kind of privileged role in shaping the future of our country. It's my belief that that has come to an end, that consensus is in a crisis, and therefore these progressive forces uh, are, are no longer capable of um, providing a future for our country. Instead, we're pivoting, as I say, the return of the strong gods. And in this environment, although those of us who go to church and have a deep and, and uh, authentic faith are, are by no means the majority of our country, we are a substantial minority, and we are going to set the tone for the future of our society. So my counsel to your listeners is, we're going to have to man up and um, step forward. And it doesn't mean, you know, we got an ongoing work of evangelization to be sure, but also to, uh, to be forthright in, in leadership and accepting the responsibilities of leadership uh, for the future of our society. Because as I say with my friend, the college professor who had all the students come to him, I do believe that although people may not enter our churches, they are going to look to us as um, the trusted representatives of uh, what I call the strong gods. It's going to be a very important role. Um, and a lot of the doomerism, I call it, that can often run through our communities that we're kind of doomed. Uh, part of my argument in the book is, no, at a very fundamental level, the winds of change are blowing uh, in the West. And uh, this is really a time where we have to step up and accept our responsibility. Amen. That's a good word. And if you're not familiar with this book, Return of the Strong Gods by R.R. Reno, our guest today, we encourage you to go get a copy of it, to read it carefully, to read it with others. Uh, We'll link to places where you can access it in the notes of this broadcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Reno, for joining us today. This has been a wonderful conversation. We appreciate the work you're doing at First Things and Beyond and look forward to having uh, future opportunities to talk with you. Thank you and uh, God's blessing on your ministry. 
Thanks for joining us today on The Sword and the Trial. We look forward to having you join us again next week.